Amen. Good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? All right. And it's good to be together. Good to worship the Lord Jesus today. I want to welcome those of you watching online uh, and invite all of you to open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to um, Daniel chapter 5 this morning. Daniel chapter 5, as we continue our teaching series through this Old Testament book, um, looking at the character of Daniel, but more important, looking at the nature and character of God and, and what he does in this world. If you were here last week, we covered the story of, in Daniel chapter 4 of King Nebuchadnezzar. We said King Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world. And we looked at what the most powerful man in the world had to say about God. And through a process of God humbling him, what we ultimately see is King Nebuchadnezzar declaring that God is the sovereign king over all things. He is the sovereign God with absolute authority and complete control. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to pick up the story in chapter 5, and it's going to jump forward chronologically uh, about 23 years Daniel, who we're going to see in this story, is in his 80s now, and we're now in the next generation after King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar is dead and off the scene, and the next generation is ruling and reigning, and that's where we pick up the story this morning. So again, Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1 is where we'll begin. It says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. So the beginning of the story is an important setup to everything else we're about to see. You see a new king, King Belshazzar. And King Belshazzar, this next generation king, gives a great banquet for a thousand nobles and drinks wine with them. Now here's the problem. You and I read that there's a great banquet and a thousand people have showed up. And what we've got in our minds is sort of like a nice wedding where you have a filet mignon and a glass of Merlot and it's a nice quiet evening. That is not is what being described in Daniel 5.1. What is being described in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1, we have record of this from the ancient world, what these banquets looked like. Don't think Mastro's on a Friday night. Think college frat party on a Friday night, all right? That's where we're at in this story. There is eating and there is drinking to the point of drunkenness. There is debauchery. There is sexual sin. It, It is a disastrous party of all the most important and powerful and well-connected people in the Babylonian empire, the nobles, are all having one of these raucous parties. And that's the setup for our story today. Again, everything we're about to see happens in the context of this great banquet. And I want you to think of how wicked and sinful and ultimately what we might describe as godless the proceedings that are happening in this moment are. And yet we're going to see some surprises along the way. It says in verse 2, While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. Um, uh, drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So again, we've got this wild party, this frat party going on in the center of Babylon, in the center of the city that's at the center of the empire. All the most powerful and well-connected people are here. And what this serves as is a microcosm for the entire culture, the entire nation as a whole. What's happening here in this feast stands in for what's happening throughout the entire nation. So in fact, we could put it this way. By reading this text, we can understand just a few things about the world Daniel lived in. I want to talk to you about the world Daniel lived in. I want you to understand what Daniel is up against in this story. Because until we understand what Daniel is up against, we'll never understand what it means to trust God. Like Daniel shows us how in this story. 
I want to tell you three things about the world Daniel lived in. And these aren't three things I learned in seminary or in a book or in a commentary. It's three things you'll see right here in the text. Three things about the world Daniel lived in. Number one, the cultural elites have rejected God. Remember, this is not a banquet with just random people off the street. These are a thousand of the nobles, the powerful, the rich, the well-connected, the politicians, the celebrities, the people who have privilege and access and power and wealth. The cultural elites of ancient Babylon are at this feast and their partying and their debauchery has shown that unlike Nebuchadnezzar who came to believe and trust in the God of heaven and earth, that has been lost in the next generation. The cultural elite have rejected God. Number two, I want you to notice that belief in God is mocked and it's belittled. If you look at chapter, or chapter five, verse two and three, what you'll see is they want to get these goblets, these gold goblets that were from the temple in Jerusalem. When Nebuchadnezzar went into Jerusalem, he destroys the temple, but not before he goes into the temple, takes all of the goblets, all of the gold vessels that were used for worship of the one true God of Israel and takes them to Babylon. And then in the midst of their drunken and riotous party, they say, hey, you know what? Someone go get those gold vessels so we can drink more out of them. Listen, they weren't going and getting the gold cups because they had ran out of clean cups. They're doing this to mock and belittle the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the God of this temple in Jerusalem. They're mocking him. They're making fun of him. They're saying, some God you are, we're drinking wine and getting drunk out of the cups that were supposed to be used for your worship. And then number three, it's that sin and idolatry have run rampant. You'll see the wives and the concubines that were there. There's no question that in these ancient banquets and feasts, there were sexual perversions of all kinds going on. You'll notice a certain kind of drunkenness that pervades the story. You'll notice idolatry. It talks about the idols of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. That sin and idolatry is not a peripheral part of the story. It's right at the center of the story. So let's review Daniel's world. The cultural elites have rejected God. Belief in God is mocked and belittled and sin and idolatry have run rampant. Now here's my question for you online or in the room this morning. Anyone recognize this culture? (laughs) Anyone like ringing bells right now? Now now here's what I wanna do. I don't wanna overstate the case here. Like we have differences in our culture in the United States of America today between us and ancient Babylon. For one, there's great protections in the law that allow us to worship freely and there's other differences. So it's not that this is exactly the same, but it sure does echo, doesn't it? It's like Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And when I read the story of ancient Babylon, I know it's not the same as our day today, but it sure does rhyme a little bit, right? Like the ancient world, the cultural elites have rejected God. And I think we could say the same thing about our world. The personalities on television and in universities, the elite, the powerful, the celebrities have either rejected God entirely or certainly rejected the authority of God when it comes to the scriptures and have created a God that's just so palatable for this world. Like the cultural elites have rejected God in our time. Listen, belief in God is mocked and it's belittled. And some of you experience that on a daily basis. Some of you work at a company or in a place where you are the only Christian. You're the only one who loves Jesus, the only one who submits to his word. And you are mocked and belittled for being so backwards and foolish and out of date to believe in God. Some of you are the only Christians or one of the only Christians in your family. And so when you get together as a group, it's hard for you to live out your faith because others think you're so silly and narrow-minded for believing in the Bible. 
Listen, I just never want to underestimate that we gather as a church on Sunday, and yet when you go into your lives on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, so often, for so many of you, you enter into a space where belief in God, trust in God, worship of God is mocked and it's belittled. And then finally, you'll notice in the ancient world, it's true of us today, sin and idolatry have run rampant. We live in a culture and a time that says what is evil is actually good, and what is good is actually evil. We live in a time that has inverted God's truth and God's morality to declare what God called sin to be good. We live in a time where idolatry has run rampant. The idolatry of politics, of power, of sex, and of money. We live in a great time of idolatry in our nation where people are chasing after everything but the living God of heaven and earth. So again, I don't wanna overstate the case. I don't wanna suggest that we live in a time just like Babylon, but it sure does echo. It sure does rhyme. And if that seems true to you, if your world resonates even a little with the idea that there are certain forces in this culture that seem hostile to God, then here's the question we get to wrestle with this morning in Daniel chapter five. How do you live faithfully when the culture around you is hostile to God? This is the question that every believer in Jesus must wrestle with in our time. How do you live faithful when the culture around you becomes increasingly hostile to God? And I want you to know that in the book of Daniel, this is the central question. The central question for the people of God in the book of Daniel is how do we keep being faithful to our God when we live in a place that is not our own? When we have been taken from Jerusalem and Judah and put in the center of Babylon, how do we stay faithful to God? The book of Daniel is obsessed with this question. And the only thing they're going to use a little different, the book of Daniel and most of the Old Testament and even the New Testament, it's going to use a different word. When it talks about a culture hostile to God and our place in it, the Bible is going to use this word over and over and over to describe our position. And the word the Bible is going to use is the word exile. Exiles. The people living in Babylon were exiled. They were living in a land not their own. They were strangers in a strange land, foreigners in a foreign land. They were exiles. They did not belong. And that theme runs all throughout the scriptures. Even 1 Peter chapter 2 will call us as Christians foreigners and exiles in this world. So here's the question we want to ask this morning that we're going to explore for the rest of our time together. How do we live as faithful exiles? How do we live as faithful exiles? And listen, we're not faithful exiles. We're not exiles just because culture's changed in the last 20, 30 years. No, we are exiles because the scripture makes it abundantly clear that our citizenship is in heaven, that this world is not ultimately our home. God will remake it all. But this current reality we live in, where things are broken and sinful and where the powerful systems of this world point away from God, this is not our home. There should be a homesickness for heaven, a homesickness for what it means to be back where we belong, And ultimately, the question for all of us this morning to consider is how do we live as faithful exiles in our time, in our nation? And I think Daniel 5 is going to help us answer that question. It goes on this way in verse 5. It says, suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. Now, there's um, phrases that we use all the time in our culture, in our society. You'll hear it in the news and in the media. And sometimes people forget where those phrases actually come from. And the phrase, he saw the handwriting on the wall, actually comes from this place in Scripture. You'll hear it of a college coach who hasn't been winning as many games as his boosters would like him to win. And he sees the handwriting on the wall and leaves for another job. You'll see it from a politician who knows he or she is not going to get reelected. They see the handwriting on the wall and they resign. 
That's what happens here in this story. There's writing on that wall and the writing on the wall is a warning, a warning for the king and a warning for his nobles. But before we even get to the content of that warning, I just wanna stop and notice something spectacular about this. Remember, I said this is not a nice steak dinner on a summer evening. This is a wild and raucous party. We might even describe this as a godless environment and a godless party. And yet what happens here? God shows up. God is present. It's like in the midst of everything that is happening, God never left the place. God was present in the first place. So perhaps we should stop even calling things godless because there is no place in this world that is godless. He's everywhere. He's in the midst of it. He sees it. He hears it. He knows what is happening. And right here in the middle of this party with drunkenness and debauchery and sexual immorality and idolatry and mocking of the God of heaven, we see him writing on the wall, which means God was there already. God saw everything. You know what the first thing we must do if we want to be faithful exiles in a world that is not our home? Faithful exiles need to remember that God is still present even when it seems like he's absent. God is still present even when it seems like he's absent. So at your work, when you go in tomorrow morning or at that family gathering where no one really seems to want anything to do with God, God is present in those places. When you turn on the news and you see something happening in our nation that just horrifies you and gets you upset, don't believe for a minute that God's absent, that God has taken his hands off the wheel. God is sovereign. He's present. His providence is working. His promise is still true. And he has never left or abandoned his people. God is still present even when it seems like he's absent. It goes on this way in verse six. It says, his face, that's the king, the, faces, the face of the king turns pale and he's frightened and his legs become weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. And he said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in all the kingdom. Then all of the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale and his nobles were baffled. So what happens in this story in the midst of this wild party filled with debauchery and sin and idolatry, God shows up because God's always there, even when it seems like he's not. And then what happens immediately after that, there's writing up on the wall and suddenly it presents a problem to King Nebuchadnezzar and to his nobles. They don't know what it means, they don't know what it says, and they certainly don't know what the implications are for them, and they're terrified. They're terrified, they have a problem, they have something they need to fix, and so they do what every king, prime minister, president, emperor, leader, governor has always done when there's a problem. They bring together the brain trust, the smart people, it says here in the text that they bring together uh, the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners, the wise men of Babylon, the nobles, everyone gets together. They bring in all the experts to try to figure out what the solution to this problem is. But the experts cannot figure out what the solution to the problem is. And the reason that the experts in this story have no idea how to fix this problem is because the experts in this story are disconnected from the God that's behind the problem. The experts in this story are disconnected from God and therefore have no ability to fix this problem. Like I could put it this way. The experts in this story think there's a physical or material answer to this question when the actual problem that's before them is a spiritual problem of their disconnection from God and therefore their disconnection to one another. 
That's the core problem in this story. And I want you to know that whether it's ancient Babylon or your life or your family or your country, the greatest problems are never physical or material. The greatest problems in our life, in our world, in our nation are always spiritual. Listen, faithful exiles recognize that the deepest problems are spiritual problems. They're spiritual problems. So whatever problems or issues or tension exist in your life right now, whether it be physical or medical problems or whether it be financial or relational problems, those are all real problems with real solutions. But underneath those problems and issues is ultimately a spiritual problem. That the greatest issues in your world and in your family and in my family are ultimately spiritual issues. And the same is true with our country. From time to time, if you watch the news, you'll hear a report about some new problem that's emerged in our nation. You'll hear about declining birth rates and what that means for the future of our civilization. You'll hear about deaths of despair and just the heartbreak of addiction and pain and suicide and depression and despair. And you'll hear about how that's proliferating across our nation. You'll hear about anger and political division. You'll hear about all these different things going on. And what does, what does the people in charge do? They bring together the brain trust, the smartest people. And they get the smartest people in the room and they try to figure out a solution to the problem. And don't you notice the solution to the problem is always just throw more money at it, right? Because here's what happens. We tend to think our deepest problems are material or physical problems. But here's what the faithful exile recognizes. That beneath all of those problems is a spiritual issue that there's a spiritual issue going on in your life and in your family and in your country. And beneath all of those things are spiritual issues. So it's not that there's no room for experts or or wise men to speak into uh, physical or material solutions to problems. It's just until we get to the root of the spiritual issues in this world, in our nation, in our lives, in our families, we'll never find true relief. Here in this story, the nobles are baffled. The king is baffled. No one knows what to do because they don't recognize that their problem is actually a spiritual problem. It says this in verse 10. It says the queen. So we got a new character in the story. The queen comes in. The queen, hearing the voice of Daniel and his nobles, came to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Do not be alarmed and look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, was appointed chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, who was called King Belteshazzar, who was called Belteshazzar by the king, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So I won't linger here for long other than to say that Daniel is known. Daniel has a reputation. It's been 23 years since he interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And over the last two decades, he's maintained his witness. He's maintained his reputation. And I think this is a great reminder for those of us in exile. If you're the only Christian in your workplace, in your family, in your school, in your network of friends, wherever you go, if you find yourself the only or one of the only Christians... What if you could be known for what Daniel was known for? Being someone who's filled with wisdom and understanding, being someone who can say, I see the problem, but actually understand it's a spiritual problem beneath that. Not that you have all the answers to everyone's problems, but you know where they can find the answers. And you know the God who wants to give them wisdom and understanding. See, this is Daniel's reputation. Two decades after what we saw last week, where he spoke with truth and wisdom, he is still known for being someone people can go to, when the answer is ultimately a spiritual question. 
Verse 13, it says, So Daniel was brought before the king and said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and the enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they couldn't explain it. Now I've heard that you're able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed with purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your reward to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. So I love this moment. Because remember, Daniel is brought before the king, but remember there's a thousand nobles as well. So imagine the king is sitting right up here on the stage. A thousand of us in this room are watching on and Daniel begins to talk to the king. And the king says, if you can read the writing on the wall, not only will you help us out, but we're gonna help you out. We're gonna clothe you in purple, which means we'll make you one of the nobles. We'll give you a gold chain and you'll be the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And if I can summarize Daniel's response, it's I'll help you read the, read, read, read the writing on the wall. That's totally fine. But go ahead and keep your gifts. I don't want them. Like there's this kind of like, I don't need your gifts. I don't want your gifts. I'm not into your gifts. I don't want what you have. And I don't want us to blow past this part of the story. Because what's happening here is that Daniel is keeping a consistent thing he's had since the very first chapter where he doesn't want to get sucked into the systems and the patterns of ancient Babylon. What happens here is he knows that if he takes this purple clothes, if he takes the gold chain, if he becomes one of the nobles, he becomes part of this, he will become part of Babylon and he will be absorbed into the patterns and the systems that have led Babylon to this place. And Daniel doesn't want anything to do with it. In other words, he says, I'll tell you what the writing means. I have that ability, but I don't want anything to do with your gifts. I don't want anything to do with your way of life. And here's what I want us to recognize this morning. Again, I don't want us to blow past this. I want us to recognize that faithful exiles refuse to get sucked into the patterns of this world. Romans chapter 12 is gonna put it this way. In Romans 12 too, it says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That if we're going to be faithful in this age, we need to recognize the patterns and the practices and the systems of this world and refuse to conform to them. Refuse to get sucked into the way everyone else is living. Now the patterns of this world, the systems of this world are so hard for us to see. And the reason they're so hard for us to see is because we live in them every day. It's like a fish in the middle of water. If you ask the fish, what's water? They'd say, I don't know. It's all they know. It's like us breathing in oxygen. We don't even realize we're doing it. And yet it's just everywhere. And so when we think about the systems, the patterns of this world, the practices of this world, part of what it means to be faithful to God is to identify the practices of this world and then just refuse to conform to them, refuse to get sucked into it. Say, so just because everyone else is living this way, I'm not going to live this way as well. This is what Daniel does when he stands up and says, I don't want your purple robe. I don't want your gold chain. I don't want to be a noble. I don't want to be a ruler. And we have to do the same thing. Because if we're not careful to identify the patterns and practices of this world, we will get sucked into them without even knowing. So this is a warning for all of us in this room to not get sucked into the patterns and the practices of 21st century America in the suburbs outside of Los Angeles. And this is so easy for us to happen. I want to give you three specific examples of what I mean, just so we're so clear on this. There are probably a hundred. Let me give you three. Number one, I want you to be aware of the allure of wealth and the sin of greed. The allure of wealth and money and possessions and bigger and better and more and upgrades. I want you to be aware of the allure of wealth and the sin 
of greed. Listen, all throughout the Bible, we are told that money is the great competitor to our heart with God. We are told that money will ultimately be something we will bow down to and worship rather than the God of heaven and earth. And you know what the problem is? Every time that money is talked about, every time we talk about the sin of greed, every time we talk about the dangers of wealth, the danger is that everyone in this room will go, you are right, Brian, and my neighbor needs to hear this message, right? (laughs) That's the danger. Or the danger is you're like, yeah, well, I don't. But but the people living in that neighborhood over there with the gates around it, they need to hear this. And then the people in the neighborhood with the gates are going, listen, the people inside the gates of the gates, that's who needs to hear this message. Listen, whenever we talk about wealth and money, it is so easy to think that applies to someone else. Because no one in this room is going to be like, well, yeah, definitely, I'm greedy. You know, like we pastors talk about this all the time. People confess all kinds of wild sin to us. I mean, some things we expect and some things we just frankly did not expect, okay? But, but, But here's what never gets confessed to us. I'm greedy. I spend all my money on me. It's just so rare that someone identifies the sin of greed in their own heart and life. And yet it is called sin in the Bible and we need to recognize this and not think this is a problem for someone else out there, but to recognize it's a problem for us. Listen, there should be no Christian living in the richest nation in the history of human civilization who thinks that greed and wealth would never be a problem for you. Even if you're just scraping by to pay the bills, even if you live paycheck to paycheck, you live in the wealthiest time that human history has ever known. And you and me and all of us need to be careful not to just get sucked into the wealth around us, to this kind of bigger, better, upgrade thing. It's not that a wealthy person can't be faithful to God. It's just that the wealthier we get as individuals and families and as a nation, the more we should have our antennas up for how wealth can pull us away from God and how greed is actually a sin listed along with all the other sins in the New Testament. I want you to be aware of the allure of wealth and the sin of greed. The second thing I want you to think about when it comes to the patterns and practices not conforming to this world is I want you to be aware of the allure of acceptance and the trap of approval. The great danger is that you would start to want to be accepted in polite society, accepted in your office, accepted at your school. And it's okay to be accepted. It's okay when people like you. I don't think the Christian life is like trying to not be accepted, but there ultimately is a trap And the trap is if you're looking for everyone's approval constantly. If you are constantly looking for everyone's approval and changing your beliefs and ideas and convictions just to make sure everyone approves of you, it is a constant trap. You will never get there. It is never something you can possibly achieve. And I want you to know that our culture is trying to make you conform to get you to think like and talk like and spend money and dress like and listen to the music just like everyone else. And there's this conformity that is almost pressed upon you constantly in media and social media and the internet. And to be a faithful exile is to resist that. To say, listen, I'm not just going to buy into everything happening all around me just because everyone else is doing it. And I want us to be aware of the trap of approval. I want us to not conform to the patterns of this world. You should be looking at your life often saying, where am I not conforming to the patterns of this world? Where do I look a little weird? And again, I'm not saying you should be awkward or uncomfortable or rude. I'm just saying sometimes Christians should look a little weird in this world. And that's a good thing. It means we're being faithful. If we're doing things different than others, that might be an indication of our faithfulness to our God and us avoiding the trap of approval. And then finally, let me just give you one more that I think is important right now. I want you to be aware of the allure of power and the vice of cruelty. We live in an age of public discourse um, that could best be described as cruel. And I think everyone knows this. 
on social media, on television, the way discussions and debate happen. It is a cruel, graceless, angry, bitter, vulgar culture that we live in. People are not able to just have conversations where they disagree with one another. There are insults, it is mean, it is condescending, and it is rude. And the prevailing notion of our age seems to be this. If you're right on the big issues, it doesn't matter how mean you are when you communicate it. Have you noticed that? It's like if you're right on the issues of racism or abortion or school curriculum or what the government should be doing, if you're right on the big issues of the day, then it doesn't matter how cruel and mean you are to the other side because you're right and your job is to destroy them. And I want to point out this morning, and I want us all to take a deep breath and recognize that it is past time to say that cruelty is not Christian, cruelty is not godly, cruelty is not holy, cruelty is sin to be repented of for the child of God. Amen? And, and here's what has happened. Even Bible-believing Christians like us get sucked into it because we believe so passionately in what we believe in. We believe it is God's will. We believe it is correct. But if you believe something is correct and it is God's will, you communicating it in a way that is cruel, condescending, rude, vulgar, or mean is sin in and of itself to be repented of. And the spirit of the age wants to suck you into this cruelty. And Calvary, may it never be said of us. May we never be a cruel people, a mean people, a vulgar people, just because we're right or just because we think this is what God says. Don't get sucked into that. The entire world right now just wants you to be mean and cruel and vulgar and angry because you're right and they're wrong. Don't you get sucked into it. Don't conform to the patterns of this world. Daniel understands that he can be conformed to the patterns of Babylon and he doesn't want that. He chooses something different. I want you to see how it continues this way in verse 18. This is Daniel speaking. Here's his big speech. He says, your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of his high position, he gave him all the nations and people of every language and they dreaded him and feared him. Whoever the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. And those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was given away from the people into the mind of an animal. And he lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Back when I was in school, I remember there was something called Spark Notes, which was like, if you forgot to read the book, you could just read Spark Notes and it would give you the summary. This is the Spark Notes of chapter four, okay? So if you missed last week, that's the summary. King Nebuchadnezzar humbled before God until he recognizes the glory of God in heaven. Verse 22, Daniel continues speaking. He says, but you, now he points at the king, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets of his temple brought to you and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and of gold and of bronze and of iron and of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all of your ways. Now, again, it's easy for us to just think this is a nice little speech in the Bible until we remember that this is Daniel not just standing in front of the king, but a thousand of his nobles, the most powerful, well-connected, rich, and privileged people in the nation who could put his life to an end in a moment. And Daniel stands in front of them and says something that is unbelievably hard for them to hear. 
says, King Belshazzar, your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, he recognized the God of heaven, but you don't. You have sinned, you have walked in idolatry, you have fallen from grace, you have fallen away from what God wants for your life. He's not being cruel, he's not being angry, he's not being mean, he is simply speaking what is true about the situation. He is speaking the truth. Now, how is Daniel able to do this? Uh, Again, it's just easy for us to say like, ah, yeah, it's Daniel, he's supposed to do that. But imagine if you were up here on the stage, I gave you a microphone and we put the thousand most powerful people in America and your job was to tell them how they'd slid from God. There would be at least part of you that would be afraid, nervous, anxious. For some of you, it's not the most thousand powerful people in America, it's your family, it's your business, your company. And here's Daniel, who has that kind of courage. And where does courage like this come from? Here's where I think it comes from. I think Daniel knows it well. All throughout the scriptures, there is a phrase, two phrases that are contrasted. The fear of the Lord and the fear of man. The fear of the Lord means I fear God above all things. I revere him. I care about his opinion more than anything else. And the fear of man is this trap, this snare, where all we care about is the opinions of others. We want people to like us and approve of us and not look down on us and not walk away from us. And here's what happens for Daniel. And here's what can happen for us. Daniel cares more about the fear of the Lord than the fear of others. And for everyone in this room, here's the invitation. Is that faithful exiles fear the Lord more than they fear the opinions of others. And that's what I want for us, church. I want us to be a people who say, I fear the Lord. I want his approval more than the approval of others. I want God to approve of me. I want to be found doing what is right, saying what is right, believing what is right, living and raising my family like it's right, rather than going for the opinions of every other person. The Bible calls the fear of man looking for everyone's approval a snare, a trap. You know part of why it's a trap and a snare? You ever notice that our culture changes its mind every five minutes on what's right and wrong? It's like every few minutes, every few years, there's a new thing that's right or wrong or what used to be right is now. It's very confusing. And if all you're trying to do is make sure you fit in perfectly to 21st century Western Southern California culture, you'll spend the rest of your life adrift with the wind just constantly changing your opinions and thoughts and approaches and lifestyles. But here's what we're called to do. We're not called to seek after the opinion of everyone else. We're called to simply declare what is true about God and to stand there and say, I can do no other. That I'm gonna stand upon the truth of the word of God rather than constantly blowing around in the winds of the culture around us. Now hear me clearly. I know I say this to some of you and you just get fired up. You're like, that's right. We don't have to care about people's opinions. We're gonna show them. And if that's you right now, please rewind the sermon about five minutes, okay? Like, like the cruelty, this is not a call to cruelty. This is not a call to be angry, to be cruel or bitter or divisive or mean or rude or condescending or vulgar. It is a call for us to just stand firm on the word of God, not so we can be cruel to others, but to stand firm even if others are cruel to us. Others in our family, others at your school or in your company, others who you work with or do life with, to stand firm about what God says because culture is going to change around us. And sometimes our culture is going to agree with things in the Bible. And sometimes it's going to disagree with things in the Bible. And our job is not to constantly be reaching after, like grasping for the wind, the approval of everyone around us, but rather to say we're okay not fitting in perfectly. In fact, I would submit this to you. If your Christianity fits perfectly with 21st century Western America, it's probably not the God of the Bible you're believing in. It's probably not. Our Christianity does not fit perfectly in our nation, our time, and our culture. And that's okay. Neither did Daniel's. But Daniel feared the Lord more than he fears the opinion of others. And that allows him to be courageous. 
And that's what I want for everyone in this church. Not a mean, cruel, divisive, insulting kind of truth, but a truth where we stand there, even if others hurl insults at us. Verse 24, it goes on this way. Now we're going to actually find out what the writing on the wall says. It says, therefore, he had set, before, he had set the hand that wrote the inscription. And Daniel says this. This is what the inscription, this is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. If you're going, I have no idea what that means, you're in luck because the next verse will explain it. Verse 26, here's what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered your days and your reign has been brought to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. In other words, the king is told, your kingdom is about to collapse. You will no longer be king. There is a new empire that is going to come in because God has numbered your days and he has finished with your rule and your reign over Babylon. He speaks this to the king and to all of his nobles. But here's what I want to point out is so important. He doesn't speak what his opinion is to the kings and nobles. He doesn't tell them, here's how I feel about Babylon. He doesn't say, I've written a white paper and here's what I'd like to present to you about your flaws in leadership. No, Daniel presents to the king and to all of his nobles, not his thoughts, opinions, or feelings, but rather what God actually has to say. And all throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, we see a phrase, thus saith the Lord. Here's what God has to say. And I want us to understand that if we want to have that same kind of courage and confidence that Daniel has, we must be able to say the same thing. Thus saith the Lord. And what Daniel had was the handwriting on a wall with a few words. Child of God, we have something so much better, don't we? We have God's Bible, his word. We have it in our laps right now. We know exactly what God has to say. We know exactly what he has to say. And listen to me, faithful exiles, faithful exiles hear the voice of God through reading God's word. That's what a faithful exile needs to do. A faithful exile must be able to say, thus saith the Lord, not based on their opinions or their feelings or their ideas, but based on what God has actually said. And that's the challenge for us, to be a people who love and read and are faithful, to be diligent in our Bible reading. Listen to me, there's all kinds of input you get in your life. You are constantly being given messages. In fact, some of you, since we started the church service or since the sermon started, your phone has buzzed with a text message or an email or a news alert, or an ESPN alert on your, your favorite game that you're following. Like you're just constantly getting input. And how do you cut through the noise of every voice in this culture that wants to speak to you? You listen to God's voice through reading his word. And here's what I want to invite you back into, to doubling down on knowing and reading and faithfully going to the Bible. Well, like here's what I know, it's July right now. We're in the second half of the year, which is always crazy to say. And we're here in the second half of the year. And back in January, some of you made commitments about reading the Bible. You said, 2021, this is the year I'm gonna read the Bible like never before. I have a plan, I'm gonna read the Bible. And some of you have stayed faithful to that plan. Others of you are here in July and you have been less than faithful to the plan, right? You've slipped off the plan. Your Bible's on a shelf somewhere. You haven't read in a while. And listen, I'm not here to shame you. I'm not here to heap guilt upon you. I'm just here to invite you in. The God of the universe isn't silent. He has something to say and he wants to speak to you. You can hear God's voice, but you will never hear God's voice unless you read God's word. When you read God's word, you know what God's voice sounds like. And so this is the invitation for us in exile. 
in a culture that's become increasingly hostile to God, I just don't think there's any Christians who are gonna thrive in their faith unless they're personally, diligently, consistently, and faithfully reading their Bibles. I wanna invite you to do that. If you don't know how to start or where to start, there's so many resources we have for you. If you go to the front page of our, our, of our website, there's a little button that says Bible reading plans. You click that button and you'll find Bible reading plans, right? If you go to the front page of our website, there's a little um, icon right now where you can click and get Pastor Sean's devotionals, where there's a scripture and a little devotional for every single day. This is what you're invited into, to listen to God's word so that you can hear God's voice. I want you to see how that story ends. It's actually kind of surprising what happens next. Verse 29, it says, Then at King Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in all of the kingdom. Like, in other words, Daniel looks at the king and goes, uh, hey, listen, you're a terrible king, and your kingdom's coming to an end. And the king, for some reason, goes, reward this man. But then it gets even stranger. Verse 30 says, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Now, no one saw this one coming. Like, again, if you've read the Bible, you know this is coming, but no one in this story saw this coming. This is so shocking and overwhelming, and it's so easy for us to blow by because we didn't live in the ancient world. But here's what it would be like. It'd be like if tomorrow, Monday morning, you woke up, and suddenly there was a news alert on your phone, the United States of America is no more. It'd be shocking because this is the great military superpower of the world. How could it possibly fall overnight? And yet that's exactly what happened to Babylon. Babylon is the great military and wealth and economic superpower of the world. And in one night it fell and the Medes and the Persians take over. In one night it fell. No one saw this coming. No one thought this was happening. If the day before someone had said, the empire of Babylon is gonna fall and the king is going to die, everyone would have laughed them out of the room said, that's impossible, you foolish person. The empire is strong. The walls in Babylon are thick. No one can penetrate this empire. And that's exactly what happens. And here's our reminder this morning for faithful exiles like you and me who are trying to be faithful to God. It's that faithful exiles remember that God's stories always have surprise endings, right? Like read the entire Bible from Abraham to Moses to Elijah to David. You'll find surprise ending after surprise ending. The great culmination of the Bible is a great surprise ending where Jesus Christ dies on the cross for our sins, lays in the grave, and then surprise, he comes back three days later. There are surprise endings all throughout the Bible. Things never go the way they always seem like they're gonna go. There is a surprise ending in this story where the great military and economic superpower of the world falls in a night. And again, if three days before someone had predicted that, everyone would have told them they're crazy. If someone said, what if Babylon falls? And God brings in the Persian empire and the Persian empire allows us Jews to go back to the Holy Land to build our temple. And that would be the same temple that Jesus himself would go into. Everyone would have laughed them out of the room. And yet, here's what we as exiles need to remember. The faithful exiles allow themselves to ask this question. What if? What if? That's what faithful exiles allow themselves to do. We don't fall into this negativity of our culture doesn't love God and people don't love God and it's always gonna be this way and things will never get better. No, we allow ourselves to ask the question, what if? So here's how I wanna close this morning. I wanna ask five what if questions. I'm not saying these will come true. I'm not saying I think they should come true. 
I'm just saying, if I believe the same God who toppled the Babylonian empire in one night can do that, maybe he can do a few of these. Five what-if questions to end this morning that might just build your faith as you think about what it means to be faithful in exile. Number one, number one, here, or, 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 sorry, sorry, faithful exiles, we'll put this up here. Faithful exiles allow themselves to ask, what if? Um, here's the first question I want to ask. Um, what if the current cultural decay is creating fertile soil for a great revival? Anyone want to believe for that? Like, what if the decay all around us is just fertilizing the ground so that God can grow up a great revival in our time and in the 21st century? Like, what if we believe that what's happening right now is just setting the stage for a great comeback for God's church, not through our power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit? What if? Next question, number two. What if technology allows us to reach every nation with the gospel in our lifetime? Do you know that right now, 60% of the world is connected to the internet? What happens when it's 80% of the world, 90% of the world? What happens when we get to a place in the world where every single person alive with one click of a button can reach the good news of the gospel? What are the implications for closed countries that push out churches and missionaries? What are the implications for the nations getting to know the good news of Christ Jesus crucified for our sins? What if we're this close to every nation getting to know the gospel? Third question, what if the hopelessness of our age leads millions to hope in Christ? What if the hopelessness of our age, the addiction and the depression and the discouragement, the darkness and the suicidal thoughts, the deaths of despair, what if all of those, as as it gets darker and darker, the light of the gospel and the hope of the gospel of Christ grows brighter? What if in our lifetime we see millions of people coming to faith in Christ because the despair of this world is too much for them and they turn to the only one who can rescue and save them from that pit? Fourth question. What if the slide to secularism isn't as durable and inevitable as it seems? Secularism, this idea that there is no God, it's just physical material world. We're all a cosmic accident. There's no purpose, there's no future, there's no eternity, and there's certainly no God. What if that whole paradigm that we seem to see in our world isn't as durable and inevitable as it seems? It just seems like every week there's some poll or news report that comes out that says fewer and fewer Americans are going to church more becoming non-religious. They're not believing in God at all. And so many of us, even Christians, can fall into this kind of hopelessness that goes, well, I guess that's how it'll be forever. Church attendance will keep declining. And about 30, 40 years from now, it'll be like eight of us in this room just holding on. But what if that's not the case? What if secularism, this idea that there's nothing beyond the physical or material world, actually doesn't hold the hearts and minds of millions in the years to come? What if people reject that and start to believe that there is something beyond what they can see and taste and smell and touch? What if people start to believe in the supernatural and come to trust in Jesus Christ? What if secularism is just a moment in our history that we will ultimately move beyond? And then here's the final question, and it's the most personal to me, and I think it'll be the most personal to some of you. What if we're only seeing the beginning of all God wants to do in and through our church? What if we're seeing just the beginning of what God wants to do through Calvary Community Church? Like we've had 45 years of remarkable gospel ministry at this church where people have been saved and baptized and lives have been changed in our community and all around the world. But what if Christ tarries and 200 years from now, we look back and see the first 45 years as just a setup to the miracles that God wants to do in the next 200 What if God has remarkable things, people he's going to reach, valleys he's going to change, differences he's going to make in this world in and through our church? See, listen, there's an approach to the world for the exile that says things are going to get worse and they're going to get worse and things are people are going to leave church and it's never going to get better and we're just going to recede into oblivion. But I don't know about you, 
But I want to kind of have the faith that works towards and prays towards and fasts towards and believes towards and labors toward a world where God brings a great revival in and through our church. Anyone else want to believe toward that, pray toward that, think toward that, give toward that, serve toward that? That's what the exile is allowed to ask. And again, some of you are going to look at me and be like, this is wishful thinking. This is you just being an optimist. This is just like, this is impossible. That's not going to happen in our time. It's not going to happen in our lifetime. And let me just close by reminding you that faithful exiles live with an inexhaustible hope in the God of the impossible. Faithful exiles are the ones who say, yes, it seems impossible, but so did the fall of Babylon. That happened in a night. So God could turn this all around in an instant. That's the kind of confidence and faith we can have, not based on our power or our strength, but by the presence of a holy and a sovereign God whose spirit could move across this land and change everything in a moment. I want to believe toward that. I want to have that kind of hope. And I want that kind of hope to be burning in your hearts as you go into whatever's next for you this week or this month or this year to believe in the God of the impossible. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. Thanks for the opportunity to look once again at your word. Thanks for Daniel 5 and um, the challenge um, that we are given to be a faithful exile in the midst of a world that's hostile to you. God, I pray for the men and women here who live or work or, or play or hang out or do life in a hostile environment where God's rejected, where God's not wanted. I pray that you would give them confidence and faith and integrity. I pray that you would give them a vision for the future that is not one of despair, but rather one of hope. So God, help our church be a part of whatever you have for this world. And God, I pray and ask that you would turn things around. A great revival for your church and your gospel in our time, in our lifetime, God. I pray that you would do that. And God, may we get to play some small part in that. We pray in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.